But first, I think we need to pray. And I think for us as Catholic Christians, sometimes when we talk about, you know, like prayer and, and something of a structure, it's like, okay, well, Father's going to say some words, and then at the end, he's going to say something like, through Christ our Lord, and then I'm going to say, amen. And, you know, that's, that's prayer. And it's like, no, no, like, let's, let's take a minute to really think about the God that we're approaching. The book of Isaiah talks about this God. Isaiah has a vision of heaven, and, and he's brought up into this place, into heaven, right? And so to, to try to imagine this, you know, I think, I think we could do a better job of imagining. And it's not, you know, imagination. It's not like coming up with fake things um, like an imaginary friend. But, but God gave us this ability to use pictures in our minds. And sometimes he can help guide those pictures by helping us to imagine, put images to real things like heaven. And so when we talk about Isaiah having this vision of heaven and then he describes what it's like, it's, it's meant to lead into our minds to really consider what that might have looked like. It's this really beautiful thing. He, he says he, he saw the Lord seated upon a throne and the entire temple, so you got to think of the temple. The temple is way bigger than this church. The entire temple, it says, was filled with the train of his robe, right? So he's, he's this, this great figure seated on a throne, and it's filled with, with his robe that he wears, this very um, elegant apparel. And, and then Isaiah says he sees angels hovering, and they have six wings, and they use two of their wings to cover their faces and two of their wings to cover their feet and the other two to fly because, because they know that they're in the presence of a holy God and that they, they're not worthy to look God face to face, to look him in the eyes, and so they cover themselves. And yet, as they cover themselves out of modesty, it says they're shouting one to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. All the earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy. They're just yelling back and forth, this, this beautiful image. And, and, and then what happens? It says that, that when he speaks, the foundations of the thresholds shook. His voice is so booming, it's so strong that the foundation shook. Right? Let, your, let your mind be expanded beyond what you typically think of when you think of praying to God. He's so much bigger than you really think. You know, what would it be like to come into the presence of that God? And that's, that's the presence that we come into. And so Isaiah's response is, it's not, it's not like, oh, this is so great. His response is, woe is me. Woe is me. Like, I, I'm in the presence of this holy God, and, and I come from a people of unclean lips. I'm not, I'm not accustomed to speaking to such a holy God in an appropriate way. And so woe is me. But then what happens is an angel goes to this, this furnace, and he pulls out a, a, a coal from the furnace, and he touches it with, with uh, the, the, he touches it to the mouth of Isaiah. And from there, uh, the Lord is able to send Isaiah on this mission to be a prophet. So when we pray, like just to realize, this is the God that we pray to, and, and we're asking God to bring, to bring the heat to us, the purifying fires of his love. So let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's take a moment to be quiet.
is to imagine God in all of his glory and all of his power. Holy, holy, holy God. We come before you, Father, recognizing our smallness and our insignificance before you. And, and yet, this crazy thing, we, we look at you and we see that you're gazing upon us and we're so filled with awe and wonder, maybe a little bit of terror. We see the look of love in your eyes and we just delight and we rejoice in your delight for us. Thank you for this evening. Jesus, bring the heat tonight, the purifying fires of your love. As we hear about these saints, but even more than that, Jesus, as we gaze upon your face in Eucharistic adoration, bring the fire tonight so that our hearts can become like your sacred heart, burning with the divine love bleeding every last drop for the salvation of the world. Help us to be men and women on fire, like Blessed Carlo, like Saint Manuel. Inspire us with your Holy Spirit in every way possible so that we, like Isaiah, can be sent out both as individual children of yours, and also as a community of believers, a community of disciples, a church, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we've got a couple of saints here. Uh, Blessed Carlo Acutis, and then I was surprised. I opened up, so it came in. Uh, the relics came in this little suitcase, carry-on suitcase, and I was I was surprised. I was like, "Wow, a bonus saint! This is great." So, the Eucharistic revival that we've got in our country, uh, there's three there's three years to it, and as I understand it, for each year there are two patron saints. Um, and this first year of the Eucharistic revival, the patron saints are Blessed Carlo and Saint Manuel Gonzalez Garcia, uh, and I thought the two relics would be going on sort of separate tours, but it turns out they're, they're traveling companions. Uh, someone joked to me before, you know, because this was advertised as a Blessed Carlo Acutis sort of thing, and so someone was saying, you know, maybe St. Manuel's like his traveling buddy, and I was like, maybe it's the other way around, you know, like St. Manuel was a bishop, and he's a saint, Blessed Carlo, you know, he's a kid, you know, so it's like happy to tag along with, with Bishop Manuel. Anyway, it's, it's a great, a, a great gift. But, but before we talk about them, I think, I think it's really important for us. We can't understand their life. We can hear about their life, and we can, we can maybe in some ways be inspired by their, their lives, but we can't really understand it unless we first understand Jesus, which I know might sound kind of strange because many of us have been coming to church for decades, much longer than I've been alive even. And some of us have been following the Lord for years and years and years. But, but I think it's really helpful for us from time to time to try to forget what we think we know about Jesus. 
You know, we, we, can, we can hear this message over and over and over again, talking about how Jesus saves us from our sins. But then if you, if you ask, the, like, ask the question, yeah, but like, what does that mean? I, th- I think a lot of people might be hard-pressed to come up with an answer that's really satisfactory. You know, sometimes, sometimes Jesus can become so familiar to us that, that rather than being good news, right, the gospel being good news, it kind of becomes old news. And, and this, is, this is the case for priests. You know, like, if you think about this, right, the, the, the priest acts in the person of Jesus. And many times, I, I can tell you this, and an honest priest will tell you the same thing, that what we do can just become so familiar to us that we actually forget about the incredible gift that it is. You know, it's the same, and it's the same for, for all of us. You know, we can come to Mass and it can become so familiar that we can forget about the incredible gift that Jesus offers us in the Eucharist. And pretty soon we start focusing more on ourselves and satisfying our own preferences, looking for music that we like, looking for people that we like, rather than focusing entirely on the mystery before us. You know, so so to, to try to forget this, just for, just for a minute, uh, and I'm going to talk about it so we can maybe remember. But, but to understand Jesus, we have to understand what comes before him. So we have to go back a bit, all the way to the beginning. So why does Jesus come? Well, Jesus comes for a reason, and that reason, uh, it happens, something happens, right? So, so God does something, then humans do something, then God does something. So what does God do in the beginning? Well, he creates, we know this, we believe this. He creates everything that exists before anything exists, before there's air, before there's light, before there's land, before there's anything, there is God. And God dwells in perfection. He has no need of anything else. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we say a perfect community of love. That, that God has no need of you, he has no need of me, He has no need of anything or anyone else. And yet, out of the love of his heart, he decides to create. And when he creates, he creates everything that exists. And he does it without effort. And it doesn't cost him anything. You know, like when you and I create something, if if, if you're going to, you know, make a... uh, a gift for someone, a card for someone. It costs you time and energy, effort. If you're going to garden, right, it takes you time. It might be things that you enjoy doing, sure, but, but it, it costs you something, right? For God to create, he breathes and stars come into existence. It costs him nothing and he does it freely. No one is forcing him to do it. No one's trying to convince him to do it. He just simply does it because he loves. And everything that exists is made by him. And by the way, everything that exists is so much bigger than we really understand. You know, one of the beautiful things that that we have living in northern Minnesota is that we don't have all the big city lights like they have in the metropolis areas. So we can look up at the sky at night and we can see all of the stars. But but the thing is, you guys, like, there's so many more stars than what we can see. This is, I, I, I'm fascinated by the stars because the Bible writes, writes in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, it's like an afterthought. He made the stars also. And it's like, well, how many stars are there? You know, like, so we live, we live in a galaxy, right? The Milky Way galaxy. And uh, science will tell us that there's something like 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And uh, they're, they're continuing to learn more and more and more about like, what's out there. But they know something like two trillion galaxies. And each of these two trillion galaxies have something like a hundred billion stars. 
So we're talking like a huge, a huge number of stars. It's, the number is, um, it's something like 70 sextillion. So that's the number 70 with 21 zeros at the end. It's the, the number of stars that they know about, and there's probably more. What does that look like? Well, if you were to, if you were to like go to, imagine going to the sand, uh, to a beach, and you're building a sand castle, where every little grain of sand represents one star in the universe, how big is a sand castle going to be? It's going to be five miles long, five miles wide, and five miles high, where every grain of sand represents one star in the universe. They, they say that there's actually more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on the seashores and on the river shores on Earth. It's crazy to think about. The thing that, that gets me is the five miles high, right? I can, I can sort of imagine something five miles long and five miles, but five miles high, like, we can't see up that high, you know? It's, it's crazy. How many, and, and these stars, you know, they're, they're not grains of sand, but they're, they're so much bigger than Earth, you know? So like our, our sun is a star, and it's just about a million times bigger than planet Earth. There's another star out there. It's, it's not even the biggest one that they know of, but at one point it was, so they called it Canis Majoris, which is Latin for the big dog. So inside of Canis Majoris, you can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside of this one star. What's a, what's a quadrillion? Great question. A quadrillion. So if you were to count from now to a million seconds, it would take you just under 12 days to count to a million seconds from now. If you were to count from now to a billion seconds, it would take you 31 years. If you were to count from now to a trillion seconds, it would take you 31,000 years. And if you were to count from now to a quadrillion seconds, it would take you 31 million years. And you can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside of this one star out of 70 sextillion stars. And a sextillion, by the way, is a hundred, or no, it's a million quadrillions. So like, we're like, expand your understanding of who God is, you know? We think of God as like this old white, you know, bearded man floating in the sky. It's like, he is so much bigger than we could possibly understand. And he is so much more powerful than we could possibly consider. He makes everything that exists. And this, this is the beautiful, you guys, his favorite creature, out of everything that he makes, his favorite creature is you. You see, you and I are limited. And so when we think of favorites, we think, well, I can have maybe one or two favorites. God's not limited in the same way that we are limited. And so he can seriously and, and sincerely look at each one of you in the eyes and say to you, you are my favorite. And I care so intensely about you. You are so important to me. And I know there are parts of your life that you're not proud of. And I love you in the midst of that. And there are parts of your life that you are so proud of. And I just delight in those things. Because I created you out of love so that you could receive my love and love me in return. As if that wasn't good enough. As if that wasn't good enough. God has a plan for your life. His plan for your life, the Bible tells us, was that we could become like him. St. Peter says this, that his divine power has granted to us every gift so that we can share in his glory and his, in, in his excellence. 
He wants us, right? So we just considered like how big he is and how, how incredibly powerful he is, how glorious he is. And, and St. Peter, the first pope, tells us that God wants us to share in that glory somehow. This is incredible. This is what God does in the beginning. So when we, when we read about how God created, it's not just like some boring fairy tale, but it's, it's the most incredible thing that we could possibly imagine. God does something. What do the humans do? Well, we see this happening in the third chapter, that this serpent comes onto the scene, and he hates the humans because, because he knows that God wants to make the humans like God, and he despises that. And so he goes to war against us and deceives us. He accuses, his name is Satan, which means accuser. He accuses God of not being good. And so what happens? The human beings begin to doubt God's goodness. And they begin to say things like, I don't need him to tell me what's right and what's wrong. I don't need him to tell me what's good and what's evil. I can figure that out for myself. I can think for myself. This is what happens. And so they disobey God's one command. His one command. They disobey it, openly rebelling against him. But when they do this, they cut themselves off from God, who is their life. He gives them life. And so when they cut themselves off from God, they are no longer in God's possession. But instead, they place themselves in the possession of the serpent, of the Satan, whose one goal for them, just like God has one goal for them, he also has one goal for them, which is to destroy them and humiliate them so that at the end of their lives, when they are no longer connected to God, who is their life, they are found in his possession for all of eternity so that he can say to them, you pathetic, foolish person, you thought that you could find happiness apart from God, and now you have no idea what I have in store for you. And so the humans are destined, stuck in this place of slavery for all of eternity. You can think of this in your own life. How many times there are, there are things that you know you shouldn't do, you don't want to do, you don't even like doing them, but for some reason, you do them anyway. This is a fruit of being trapped in the slavery, in slavery to the power of sin and death, in slavery to the powers of that wicked serpent. God does something incredible. Humans do something incredibly tragic. Now you gotta imagine for a minute, if you're God and you create this creature, create everything, you create this creature as your favorite, you give, you give him, you give her everything that they need to flourish. And in response, they spit in your face. What do you do? I'll just start over, right? The good news, you guys, is we're not God. Our God does something. And it's, it's even more incredible than the tragedy that the humans do. He's, he's, he looks down from heaven on his favorite creature, the one that he loves the most, upon you. And he says, I gotta come and save them. And so God, in all of his glory, in all of his perfection, he, again, he has no need for you and for me. He has no need for anything. And, and yet, out of the love, what does he do? 
He leaves his glory. He sends his son Jesus to leave his glory, to take on our human nature so that he can rescue us and set us free from slavery to sin, from slavery to death, from slavery to darkness. He comes down to us. How does he come? He comes, C.S. Lewis says, as though in disguise. Because if he was to come in all of his glory, he knows that the serpent is, a, is an intelligent, incredibly intelligent creature. And the serpent knows that if he sees God in all of his glory, that he can't possibly win that fight. And so he wouldn't fight. And so Jesus comes as though in disguise, taking on our human nature, still fully God, but appearing to be just like any other man. Fully God, fully man, appearing to be just like anyone else. And so the serpent goes to war against Jesus. Jesus sure does amazing things. He, he doesn't commit sins. He does miracles, all these kinds of things. But the serpent knows that eventually he's going to die because everybody dies. And so he actually brings about the death of Jesus in the most wicked and shameful way so that by the time Jesus gets to the cross, what does it look like? It looks like he is, it's not just that he's any other person, but that he's like a terrible person, it looks like. Weak, sweating blood, dirty, filthy, completely naked, utterly shameful. And the serpent approaches him and he knows, soon you will be in my possession. But then when Jesus dies, this is when he reveals his glory. And like a predator, what does he do? He pounces. Because in that moment, he enters into the kingdom of darkness, but it's his glory that is revealed, his glory which is all light, which is all brightness, which is all splendor. And in that moment, the enemy's trick, deception, is foiled. And the one who first deceived us recognizes that he himself has been deceived. The mouse has gone to the mousetrap and eaten the cheese unknowingly, and now the trap is set. Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection from the dead, conquers evil so that you and I could be set free from our slavery to sin, death, and darkness. So that you and I could receive new life from God who is love, from God who is power. And he offers this new life to anyone who will claim as their one ally, their one allegiance, allegiance to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. He offers us this new life, this life that we sacrificed, that we openly rebelled against God and sacrificed and gave up. He offers it yet again, saying, you can still become like me. You can still share in my glory, in my excellence. You can still share in my divine nature because I love you and I care for you and I am proving myself utterly unconquerable for you. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. God does some, something. Humans do something. God does something. The question, what's the appropriate response to that? Could it be anything other than saying, oh my God, and you're not sinning when you say it. Oh my God, what have you done for me? Who are you and who am I to you? I give everything that I have to you. 
Because without you, I have nothing. Without you, Jesus, I have no life. But with you, I don't just have life, but I have life beyond what I could possibly imagine. And so, Jesus, I want that life. I want to receive what you want to give. And so I give everything that I have to you. How could it be anything other than a total surrender of my life to the one who has come to lead me out of the cave of darkness and into his glorious light? Jesus, I will go where you go. I will, I will do what you do. I will say what you say. I, you just tell me what to do, and I'm happy to do it because you have set me free when I myself couldn't possibly do it. That's the appropriate response. And brothers and sisters, this, this is... This is where we look at the lives of the saints and suddenly they begin to make sense. When we look at the lives of the saints, suddenly it's like, oh my God, they're the only ones who see you clearly, God. They're the only ones who truly understand what it is to be human, to be your favorite creature. And so as I look at the lives of the saints, I am am so inspired by them and moved by them and by their witness and their example. And yet, and yet, I'm also challenged because as I look at their lives, I see that my response to Jesus pales in comparison to theirs. There's so much that you could learn about these two saints, Blessed Carlo Acutis and St. Manuel Gonzalez Garcia. I'll only tell you a couple of things about them. Go home and Google them and, and read about them. And, and all, there, there's so many beautiful things you can learn about them. So Blessed Carlo Acutis, this, this, is, this is incredible. So he grew up in a family that didn't, didn't really believe in Jesus. He was baptized as a Catholic, but they didn't ever go to Mass. He heard about Jesus. And he said, Okay, I'm ready to surrender to that. And what's more, he heard about the gifts that Jesus left behind before he died and ascended, rose and ascended into heaven. He heard about what Jesus said at the last meal that he had with his disciples before his his crucifixion, his arrest and crucifixion, about how Jesus at the Last Supper, he said, take this all of you and eat it. This is my body. Take this all of you and drink from it. This is the chalice of my blood. He heard about this and he said, oh my, this is incredible. We really believe that the bread and the wine change into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? We really believe this, and that's actually what happens? I can't imagine missing out on that. And so at the age of seven, he requested from his parents to receive his first Holy Communion. And when he received his first Holy Communion, for the rest of his life, he died at 15, for the rest of his life, until he went to the hospital and three days later died, he went to Mass every day. Not just every Sunday, of course he went on Sundays every day because he's saying if this is true if this is true i can't imagine wanting to be anywhere else if this is true why would i possibly think of missing out on being present where where heaven comes down through the words in the hands of the priest why would why would i want to be anywhere else i don't care about anything else compared to this Every time, and and so he's a kid, right? So he comes to Mass, so what does he have to do? He has to drag his family. So he does this, he drags his mom, right? Normally it's the other way around, right? The parents are dragging the kids. For him, he's dragging his parents saying, Mom, Dad, you don't understand, like, what happens at this altar? You don't understand what happens in this church? We have to go because we can receive the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus into our bodies, into our blood, our souls, right? This is incredible. 
And so he does. And now his mom, after he's dead, his mom openly says, Carlo saved me. It's incredible. Every time they would pass by a Catholic church, he would stop and he'd say, I'm just going to stop in real quick and say hello to my friend. This is a kid who gets it, and he's a kid. Right? Like, now imagine, imagine you, imagine you believe this. Right? Hopefully we do, but imagine you believe this. And you look around and you see other people who aren't living it. You see other people maybe who say they believe it, but you look at their life and you see that they're clearly not believing it. Or you look at other people and you actually hear them saying they don't believe it. But you're so intensely passionate about it because there's nothing else worth being passionate about. So what are you going to do? You're going to find every way that you possibly can to tell people about the goodness, about what God has done in the person of Jesus, about what God does every day at the altar of the Lord, where he comes down and changes bread and wine into his body and blood. And so this is what Carlo does. He hears about the miraculous things that God has done in, in the Eucharist, in the Holy Eucharist, about how there have been times where we're super extraordinary. It's, it's already extraordinary every single time, but there's like a double miracle that has taken place sometimes, Eucharistic miracles. He hears about these things, and he says, i got to find a way to tell people about it. So he creates a website, because he's a smart millennial, and he, he figures out how to make a website, and he creates this website where you can, you can go online today, and you can look at all of the times there have been Eucharistic miracles throughout the world. Again, go home and research this. Blessed Carlo Acutis, Eucharistic Miracle website. You can read about it. If you want to look at this little book that I've got here, you can look at it later. But he finds ways to tell people about this. He goes out of his way to reach out to poor people, to homeless people, to kids in his school who are being bullied and mistreated, who had parents going through divorces. He, he uses his allowance to buy food and clothing for homeless people because he says, I'm not living for this world, and so I don't care about the stuff that I have. I'm happy to spend it all on the kingdom of God so that other people can come to to know the love of Jesus. St. Manuel Gonzalez Garcia, he came into a parish as a priest. He came in, he came into the church to pray, and when he came in, he realized the church was filthy and dirty, that the tabernacle was, was filled with cobwebs, that it was empty, and that people had no devotion to Jesus and the Eucharist. And so right then and there, out of sorrow, he sits down and he says, okay, Jesus, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to telling people about your goodness, to spreading devotion in your blessed sacrament. So he does this. He starts religious orders. He preaches about the goodness of God. He spends hours praying before Jesus in the Holy Eucharist, in the tabernacle, so that people come to catch the fire, the fire of the sacred heart of Jesus and grow in their own devotion to him. These lives make sense only when you consider if you really believe what God has done in the person of Jesus. And if you believe it, that's when their lives make sense because their lives are lives that are fixed on the Lord and on His glory. And so it kind of comes down to these questions that we have to ask ourselves. What if this is all true? Do you believe it? Are you willing, brothers and sisters, to let yourself be inspired by the example of these two saints before us and all of the saints of history? But are you also willing to let yourself be challenged by them? And as I preach these words, I myself am challenged because I look at my life and I see how easily distracted I am by the things of the world. I see this. 
how easy it is to become distracted by my own desires, my own love for comfort, my own preferences, my own things. And that's not to say that comfort and, and, and pleasures are bad, but if I become so distracted by them that I ever for a moment forget about God's goodness, then I have missed out on the fire of Jesus' love. And what that means is he wants to rekindle that fire. He wants to rekindle that love in my heart. And he wants to do that in yours as well. And so for us, this big encouragement, let's give ourselves to Jesus. Let's allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by the gospel and be led by him to make a total surrender of our lives to him, to him alone.